first episode of Frame by Frame Season 2, picture editor Jay Rabinowitz, sound editor Chick Ciccolini, and re-recording mixer Dominic Tavella talk about their craft and process in collaborating with filmmaker Jim Jarmusch on his films Coffee and Cigarettes, Night on Earth, and Ghost Dog. I don't know how many people I've talked to now, I just don't realize that 90-something percent of the sound is created out of whole cloth. I refer to what we do in sound just like a chef who has an array of spices. How he combines them right, creates yeah, his unique exactly. uh, dish. What is the atmosphere? What's surrounding the scene? What's going on around the dialogue that creates the world and, and, and puts the viewer of a film in, in the scene? Frame by Frame is brought to you in partnership with Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org, and we can be found on Twitter at at PostNY. Our host for today's session is Soundtrack. I'm your host, Isabel Siderni, and this is Frame by Frame, a podcast introduction to the most influential and respected film professionals working in New York today, celebrating the iconic films and filmmakers that continue to make New York an essential center of the global film industry. Back in 1985, just after graduating from NYU, picture editor Jay Rabinovitz started as an intern with filmmaker Jim Jarmusch. Since then, he and Jim Jarmusch have collaborated on nine films. He's also worked as an editor with directors such as Darren Aronofsky, Paul Schrader, Todd Haynes, and Terrence Malick. I asked Jay to talk about the progression that led him and Jim Jarmusch to collaborate with sound editor Chick Ciccolini and re-recording mixer Dominic Tavella. It was a whole transition for us as Jim and Melody came out of NYU graduate school and they pretty much made Stranger Than Paradise in, in Jim's kitchen. And then when I got on board in, in 85 with Down By Law, that was already for them a progression. We were cutting at the Brill Building, we were cutting at Sound One. Still we had sound editors that had gone to school with them, a guy named John Auerbach and Frank Kern, who Frank continues to work in sound to, the, to, to this day. But, but each step of the way, there was a progression. On Mystery Train, we met up with Bob Hine, and Bob did the sound for us on that. And we started to, we were always sort of learning more and more, but Jim's take was always from, uh, he had no pre preconceived notion of what a soundtrack was supposed to be. And so he was coming in fresh with his own sort of view of how things could be or how things, you know, how his, how his film might sound. And, and well, it was the same thing with editing. Had no very much so. Yeah. Very much so. so. So all of those progressions, I think, were very interesting. To see Stranger Than Paradise was one scene, one shot, a kind of a, a protege of Mitsuguchi. And, and, you know, but to see the, the picture editing evolve, to see the sound editing involved when we started to collaborate with people like Dom and Chick and Bob Hine and Tony Vellante. You know, it was just, it was fascinating to, for us all to sort of evolve. I asked Jay to talk more about the evolution of his relationship with Jim and the dynamic they share that's led to nine successful collaborations. I started working for Jim Jarmusch in 1985, more or less fresh out of school. I was at NYU undergraduate and, uh, you know, was poking around for a while trying to figure out how to break into the editing world and wound up interning on Down by Law and really learned everything I needed to know about, about working in a cutting room on that film. 
Melody was the editor on Down by Law, which I interned, and then sort of by over the course of that job, the the appellation of of uh, intern sort of shifted over to apprentice, and once that job was over, I was able to join the union, ha- having a, a you know apprenticed on a on a film. We cut down by law in one of the few post production centers. At that time, there was really just a few places where cutting was done. They had to be centralized so you could get transfers and be near the the lab for dailies and stuff. We were at Sound One. Yeah, uh, everything was kind of Times Square. Very Magno, much so. Uh, Sound One. Uh, Trans Audio at the time? Yeah, that was on 54th, 54th Street. And they had a mixing studio. Yeah. After Down by Law, actually, when he came back around a few years later to make Mystery Train, uh, they invited me to be the assistant editor on that. And that's when I sort of fell into this routine of working on Jim's films and filling in with whatever other interesting things might come up between them. I uh, did another gig at the Brill Building at Sound One, which was Dead of Winter with Arthur Penn, and then I did one at Trans Audio, which was The Glass Menagerie uh, that Paul Newman directed, and we wound up mixing that with Dick Voracek, one of the last pictures that he, that he mixed. And I did do, I cut Foley for Bob on Alice, the Woody Allen picture, which was great for me to start to understand how a little bit more about sound, a little bit more about how the whole post-production operation worked. And then when it came time for the next one, Night on Earth, he asked me to cut that for him. And that was a huge break for me. And, and, uh, I always, I, from very early on, from, from really from the time he got home from New Orleans in, in 85, 86, after shooting down by law. And I, Started to get to know him. There was a kind of a, 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 bro, a I, he felt like a brother. Not, 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 not just um, in terms of filmmaking or even in terms of music, but just in terms of uh, in, 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 in life. He, he gave me my confidence as an editor. You know, I was pretty young when I started working with him. And uh, and he saw something in me, and he believed in me, and it really gave me uh, a feeling that I could that I could do this. There was a great moment for me. I can't remember which film it was on. I think it was on Night on Earth, but there was a film that came out called Straight No Chaser about Thelonious Monk, and in that film, you get a sense that Charlie Rouse, who, who, who worked with Monk, really supported him and, and helped him achieve his vision. And I always felt as an editor on all the films I've ever done as part of a kind of a jazz ensemble. And I brought the editing part of it. And, and it's a collaboration and an improvisation and you, you sort of figure it out as you go. And you know, one of the things that happens at the mix is that things will get very loud and, and Dominic will be working on something and kind of massaging it. And, and it was like magic to watch that happen. And, and, but also as part of that process, sometimes things would go silent. And, and, you know, very infrequently, but once in a while, there would be a visitor at the mix. And, and, and one night this happened and he was sort of telling someone about me. And, and his relationship with me and, and, and how it worked. And Dominic was mixing away, and I was, we were all sort of oblivious. Jim was talking to a friend or something, but I think he was telling them this story about Straight No Chaser and Charlie Rouse's relationship to, to Monk. 
and all of a sudden Dom had to rewind or or pause or stop for a second, and things got very quiet. And Jim said, "Jay's kind of like my Charlie Rouse." In the middle of this silence, and I just fucking died. I just really thought, like, that's kind of how I feel, and it's awfully nice to hear that he feels the same. It was an accident that it that kind of spilled out that way, and that has always sort of defined it for me. The first collaboration that brought Jay, Chick, and Dom together was Jim Jarmusch's Night on Earth in 1991. Night on Earth was, was cut on film, but this was the beginning of the digital age, and, and Eugene had... had you know, started to make that possible for us. And 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 hearing things in the lead up to the mix was a great blessing for yeah, us. No in the same way that, Were we working no with Sonic Solutions that time? Not, not then. Not, not yet. Not yet. No. Synclavier. Yeah. Every All the dialogue was all edited traditionally. With yeah, I think Meg Sonic didn't come in until uh, Dead Man. 94. Yeah. Yeah. I think Dead Man was the first thing we did with Sonic. And as we were sort of wrapping up the picture editing part of that job. That's when we met Chick and, and eventually hooked up with Dom as well. Re-recording mixer Dominic Tavella has mixed over 300 films, including collaborations with directors such as Jim Jarmusch, the Coen brothers, Spike Lee, Lassa Hallstrom, Ken Burns, Julian Schnabel, Paul Schrader, Wes Anderson, Hio Miyazaki, Mira Nair, Barry Levinson, Darren Aronofsky, and Martin Scorsese. When he first met Jim Jarmusch, he was making his way as a young mixer at New York's Duart Labs. At the beginning, when Jim came in with his first film, uh, Permanent Vacation, I was at uh, Duart Film Labs, and he ended up mixing it with our student mixer, for lack of a better term, you know, for like some ridiculous sum, like $20 an hour. I remember somehow connecting with him and connecting with the film, just keeping in touch you know, for the next two or three films, you know, Down by Law and uh, Mystery Train, I'd be doing dailies for him, transferring stuff like that, doing occasional temp mix or, you know, a quick little dirty thing for him to screen. But uh, I just remember thinking constantly, it's like, I want to mix this man's films. I want to mix this man's films. The quality of his films and his approach to making them, they've always been sort of unconventional in that they... They're kind of like a slice of life or reality. They they kind of float. It's not like they move with a steady plot, you know, A, B, C, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3. And they just kind of float from moment to moment. And and he does them so well. It was so very compelling. I, I said, this guy is just, what a, what a filmmaker. Boy, I would just love to work on his stuff. And, uh, you know, just finally, Night on Earth was the first one. He tapped me and said, okay. Come on and mix it. And I've basically been doing all his films since. Chick Ciccolini began as a sound editor in 1980 and was quickly recognized by directors such as Alan Pakula, Ron Howard, and Jim Jarmusch, among many others. In his first meeting with Jim Jarmusch and Jay Rabinowitz, Chick talks about how he made a strong first impression. Back in 1991, I had gotten a, a call to meet Jim and Jay an interview for the position of sound editor on the job. So at the time, I was going through a divorce. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, the day that I had this interview, my divorce was final. I, I was dressed appropriately for the, the courts. And then I came to uh, Sound One to meet Jim and Jay. So I knock on their door, 
and Jim answers the, the door. So he looks at me, and I'm in a suit, which, of course, that doesn't really back. It ended like in the 60s, people wearing jackets and ties. You're an undertaker, yeah, so he goes to me, he says, uh, you just come from a wedding? <laughs> so I said, no, actually a divorce. <laughs> so he got a kick out of that. So based on that, we, we kind of hit it off, you know? Um, but, but, but it was, it was really amazing because we, we, we really lucked out because we had, we, we had met two great sound designers, Chick and, and Bob Hind. And, 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 and we kind of alternated for yes. a little while and, and, and because we love both of them and, and they both brought, you know, wonderful, amazing artistry to, to what we were trying to do. But on, on that one, it was tricky because, Bob had done Mystery Train, but he, but Bob has a centuries-old relationship with Woody Allen, and there was a conflict on, on Night on Earth, so we got to meet Chick, and we got to work with Chick, and it was spectacular for us because we like to, to keep a certain amount of levity. You know, we're not, we're not like poet philosophers trying to yeah. make some deep piece of work we're, we're trying to do something that's engaging and fun and at the same time i think for jim somewhat naturally this this kind of poetic element comes through but but chick really brought us a kind of a, a fun uh you know a kind of a levity that 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 was great for us it was important for us i, I loved him when he laughed it was when yeah. jim laughed you know and there's nothing he likes more than to laugh you know what i mean like he's 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 you know he's as we've said ad infinitum you know there's a vision and there's a poetry but 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 the laughing and the fun and the camaraderie and the i mean we would be remiss if we didn't bring up the inimitable Tony Grocky. Oh, you know, yes. Tony Grocky was my assistant starting on Night on Earth. And, and, and again, somewhat like Chick on some weird level, brought a kind of levity. He knew what we were doing was serious and it was important to us, but he also knew it was important for us to have fun and to keep it light, light oh, yeah, and sort yeah, of fleet yeah. of foot. And, and it was helpful. It really was. It was helpful for all of us. And, and, I think that's an important point. Like we were never like sitting there going, "We're making a great work of art." Yeah, no. We were just like having fun, trying to make something cool, trying to make something engaging, trying to make something that we could relate to. And uh, I think comedy, comedy is the the, the vital through line of on, on, of of all of his films. Yeah. You know, but but it was it's a very natural comedy though. It's not like you know joke yeah. joke joke. Yeah, hey, exactly. two guys walking to a bar. You know that kind of stuff. But, in sitting down with Jay and Jim, I could tell that, you know, Jim was not a conventional director. Being the writer of his movies is very particular about his dialogue, and, and that's most important. And so the design of A Night on Earth, which was interesting, there are five stories that basically happen at the same time in different parts of the world. L.A., New York, Paris, Rome, Helsinki. So... The beginning of each of those stories had a montage of what Jim referred to as the uglies. And that was the opportunity to do a sound montage with the visuals and basically creating unique sounds for each city and also for each cab that takes place in, in each of the cities. So we built a character of uh, sorts and um, 
the, the guys, when they were driving, they were being towed. So there was no engine sounds, which was a great thing because it gave us the opportunity to, you know, create our own sounds, as you will. This was my first opportunity of actually working digitally. Gene Garrity, who was my sound effects editor, he was working in a synclavier, and we had a room on the third floor at Sound One where we went and we spent weeks. And when we had something together, then we called Jim and Jay and have them come in. And it was great because prior to that, our tracks were all built, and, and the only way you were going to get a chance to like hear it all is at, at the mix, you know, where all the elements are up on dubbers and you're playing it back through the console. So this was wonderful because we had multiple tracks and we could play everything and, and set levels uh, that were, you know, needed to be refined, obviously, but at least it gave Jim and Jay, because they hadn't heard anything, just the dialogue and maybe some music, right? Yep. And in my world of sound, dialogue is always first, music comes in as a second, and third is your sound effects. So the music was an important element to this movie. But when we did play back the sound effects for Jim and, and Jay, we, we played a reel and we waited and there was nothing. Jay didn't say anything. Jim didn't say anything. And, and I'm like, you know, are we hitting the, are we doing the right thing or what? You know, and let me, let me see it again. And Jim really used Jay as a sounding board. I mean, Jay was his main man, you know, because it was the first time he was hearing anything. And uh, after about three or four passes, he finally said, yeah, this is pretty good. I, I think this is good, right? And it was like, at least we knew that he was, he was uh, on board with our way of thinking and the concept of the uglies. You remember that? That we would do our montage of sounds during that period and just spot in sound effects here and there to kind of keep you in the, 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 the frame of mind of where you were in New York or in L.A. We had helicopters in L.A. We had horn honks and sirens and what have you in New York. And the characteristic of the taxi in New York was great because it was one of these shit bombs that, that you know, <laughs> sputtered and, and, and... And he didn't know how to drive it. <laughs> well, that's right. Armand Stahlmuller was the uh, driver of the cab, and he just wasn't getting it, you know, so it was this jerky kind of thing, and Giancarlo Esposito was the passenger. <laughs> Let me drive. What Let a character. I mean, talking about how things just kind of evolve in the story, I mean, it, it was his, it was Jim's genius in terms of getting it going. He he got the right people to to be in the movie, I and mean, everyone was, was a gem. You know, Rosie Perez, and then the L.A. scene with Jenna Rollins and Winona Ryder. A really interesting contrast there between the two of them, and constantly with the cigarettes in the mouth, and she was uh, she was a trip. Once he was familiar, once he heard these sounds over and over again, he became comfortable with it. It wasn't anything outlandish. I did one thing, as a matter of fact, and and uh, we got a laugh. We were actually, it was in, in the New York Uglies, and they were driving through this area, and you're hearing, you know, people shouting, and a gunshot goes off. And uh, Jim says, No, nah, I don't, I don't know. You know, he got a kick out of it, you know, because it was very much 
the the uglies of this area, but uh, we 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 did away with the gunshot. Just he, he, there's an authenticity to everything he does. <laughs> Chick can tell you about that with the uh, the the fucking the fucking woodpecker. Oh, the pileated woodpecker. Because is that a pileated woodpecker? It's a woodpecker. <laughs> It's making noise, you know? Goes, no, 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 no. It's got to be a pilot of woodpecker. It's got to be like Woody Woodpecker. Well, and he's, I, a real, he's a real bird nut, too. Yeah, and, and I, totally, really I totally appreciate that. Uh, I try to sneak one by, because finding a pilot of woodpecker wasn't easy. I wound up having to go to one of the universities. Uh, Cornell, thank you. Cornell Ornithology Yep, lab. yep, yep, that was it. <laughs> so I wound up getting the pilot of woodpecker, and he was happy. <laughs> Sound is kind of invisible in the sense, because I don't know how many people I've talked to, you know, like relatives and things like that, who say they just basically thought, you know, they just, you know, stuck a mic up and, you know, the sound was just whatever's there is what was there, and don't realize that ninety something percent of that sound is created out of whole cloth. It doesn't exist. I mean, guys like Chick put together a soundscape. I mean, the street and, and, you know, or an apartment or whatever, an office. And, and there's a lot of little layers of in and out of sounds coming in and layers. out. Layers. Layers. That's layers. it, right, layers. Right. layers. I, I, always, I always refer to uh, sound as the building of layers of sound. Right, right. Uh, I also refer Jim to it. <laughs> I refer to what we do in sound because many of us have very similar sound effects in our library and uh, just like a chef who has an array of spices and herbs and what have you uh, but yet you know how he combines them right, creates right, his unique exactly. uh, dish and so in a sense that's what we do with our sound you know one of the things that came to mind on uh, a night on earth is uh, in France Isak is is driving I don't remember her name, but she's a blind woman, and she tells him that she wants to go a certain way, and he thinks that because she's blind that he can do what he wants. And so we created this atmosphere, once again, where he goes through a tunnel. And so we created this sound so that, you know, it just gradually went from this exterior ambience with the car to this tunnel that's a great example it's a great example of what you do yeah and really not just in that specific example but it's like it's as much a part of the world as the visuals it's on an equal footing actually, with the visuals no absolutely. question about it and that and that flows through now and that's a specific example where this is there's kind of a narrative reason for for that to be important right but the fact is it's important in every scene it's important in every scene what is the atmosphere? What's surrounding the scene? What's going on around the dialogue that creates the world and, and, and puts the viewer of a film in, in the scene? Right. And it, so it's specifically true in that case, and it has a narrative point, but it's true in every other scene you've ever cut sound for. The best kind of sound is sound you don't notice. Yeah, in a way. I mean, they say that a... about editing, too, and, and, and most of the yeah, time but that's, that's true. also true. Not yeah, always, well. but most Seamless. of the time. Right, right. Seamless. Well, the same thing with sound, but, uh, you know, it's like you have a big uh, effects film and you have, like, 40,000 spaceships shooting and bang, 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 bang. That's one thing. 
but if you just have two people walking down the street and talking, you have to be careful with every horn beep, every car going by, every door that's opening to a store, every person that's walking by on the street, their, their, their footsteps, their, whether they're talking. Because every little bit you want to be there because you want it to feel like it's a street, but you want to make it such that they, they're never taking away from what What's you want on. to. Exactly. 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 So it's never, right. It should never be a distraction. Exactly. It should, it should always be supporting the, the environment of the scene. Right. And, and that's when it's at its best, which is not to say it's easy it, because subtlety is not easy. Right, right. right. It's, exactly. it's, it's harder. Oh, I, I always thought that quiet dialogue scenes, two people talking to each other in a bedroom. You know, with very little going on outside. That's so much harder to mix effectively and to really make it sound good than it is like a big battle scene. I mean, just uh, in terms of simple things, for instance, like um, a voice of someone talking. Are they authoritative? Are they laid back? Are they uh, strong? Are they weak? You know, they're just... Very, very small, subtle equalization changes to things like that will make a voice seem more authoritative or laid back or anything else. So you have to very carefully see how these people are talking and, and what their emotional relationship is to the scene and the structure of the scene. And it's, it's, it's subtle stuff, and it's stuff that, I mean, even if you point it out to people, they're not necessarily going to notice it as such, but it does make a big difference because a lot of this stuff is subconscious almost. I mean, you can see what's happening on the screen and kind of like intellectually you can grasp what you can see, but it's much harder to grasp intellectually what you're hearing, first of all, because uh, you don't really understand what you're hearing in the sense of you don't understand the structure and what's gone into it. And uh, secondly, very, very small, minute differences make a large difference in how you perceive it. I mean, I'll talk to people all the time and they'll say, uh, you know, you've been working on this scene for four hours. It sounds exactly the same as it did four hours ago. So, well, no, it doesn't. You know, it's a, if you watch the scene four hours ago and you watch the scene now and you stop to think about it, you realize that there's a difference. But... Um, the trick is you don't ever want people to stop and think about it. You want it just to flow into them. And, uh, you know, and like I said before, since sound is, in a sense, invisible, it's in a way more difficult, and uh, it's harder to just get it to sit right because it is kind of invisible. Well, A Night on Earth in particular is, is one that does that, you know, by introducing each story with a montage of... of uh, yeah, it kind of sets you up for what the know, sound is going to be and, for that allows you to, to play with it, you know, to take on, give that, that particular city a character. Because once you're inside the cab, now you're focused on the dialogue that exists between the people in, in the cab. And then, of course, what you do is you sprinkle in from here and there when there were these pauses that 
allowed you to do that. Right, yeah. right. So if you're in L.A., you always know you're in L.A. in terms of the sound. Yeah. But but in a subtle way. And if you're in oh. Finland, you always know you're in Finland right. in terms of what the sound is. But, you know, it's not like, boom, Finland, we're going to have nothing but wind and snow. And L.A., boom, we're going to have nothing but, you know, cars passing by and gunshots. But it's it's a matter of sculpting it very carefully such that you create an environment, an oral environment, that's always there for the particular place you're in. It was but a real you, nice opportunity for you guys to yes. do that, you know, because the the, 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 the uglies created that visually, right. and, and, and the it soundtrack sort of had to match that, yep. and it did in its beautifully subtle way. And, and then that could be called upon to support the scene as it, as it played out. What I like about working with Dominic is that he was the dominator, right? He was the dominator. Matter of he, fact, he, uh, yeah, Jim gave me that yeah. nickname. I think Night on Earth, he'd just look at a scene and then he'd look at me and say, okay, dominate this scene. Yep. And somehow I got known as the dominator and he actually, in every one of his films that I've done, it's Dominic the Dominator Tavella. Yep. And he's the only one I've ever let use that <laughs> i don't let anybody else use that, that that's uh, the thing that i loved about jim is that he uh he really did appreciate our contribution to his work and that that's a good thing you know there there's some directors don't know what they want there's also a lot of directors it. just don't care i mean you're just basically hired to press buttons yeah. Sing, keep things in you know, sync. do it this way do it that way yeah it's fine you know but Jim really liked getting into the thing. And well, for him, it was this whole creative kind of stew. Everybody in the room, you know, it's like, just have an idea, speak it, speak it, and he'd listen to everything. And, it's, and you know, some ideas were stupid, and some he'd take, and some he'd, but, but everything was open to discussion and thinking about, and which direction should we go in? It was more than just about anybody else I've ever worked with. It was about as collaborative an effort making a soundtrack for one of Jim's films as any I've ever done. Yeah. Jim was uh, very complimentary because he said to me that he considers sound to be 50% of the movie. Other directors are not that, you know, Yeah, you hit the dialogue, you're fine. Yeah. yeah, but in his mind, that was without good sound, without the right sound, it, it makes the film not work for him, you know, and... And by the same token, too, if, if something wasn't working for him, he he said it, you know, it doesn't work. He challenges you, you know, which... Uh, Not which, shy. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I, I totally respect. And, and, and you know, for, for the films that I But, I but did, never in an obnoxious way. Never no, 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 no. You sucked, you did this wrong, you're a no, fucking No, 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 never did that. Never, never did anything that. like that. Well... <laughs> <laughs> No, but he he uh, he might have said it, but he didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah. He he was uh, he was good, and it made me especially that challenge about the pileated woodpecker. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I made sure that in in the future movies that I did, wherever the movie took place, that birds and and particular sounds are indigenous to that location. I'm not going to... Oh, no, I have to say, in, in, in the absence of Bob Hine, who, who could have been here tonight as well... Yes, he's another... Uh, we, we took that to extraordinary lengths on Dead Man. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, because Dead Man was a film that, that preceded 
across many landscapes. Started in Cleveland and worked all the way away to the West Coast. uh, Bob did an enormous amount of research to make sure that the the, the birdage was appropriate to the environment. And, 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 you know, we've had the opportunity to work with a lot of great filmmakers, production designers, cinematographers, sound designers, sound mixers, sound recorders, I mean, you know, musicians, actors, obviously, across the board. But on something like Ghost Dog, and and we talked a little bit about Dead Man as well, and on Down by Law and Mystery Train as well, we had the opportunity to work with really one of the most visionary directors of photography who ever lived, Robbie Mueller. And that and that created uh, like almost like a pictorial equivalent to the audio landscape that we're talking about. And it is kind of trippy, but it's but it's immersive. Right. And I so, remember on Dead Man, because uh, when you're initially working on mixing the film, at least back in the day, you would have fairly cheap and low-quality prints that you would work with because you're going back and forth and back and forth and you, you know, beat the shit out of them so they didn't want to have really high-quality Black and white dupes. But I remember the first answer prints of Dead Man. And I remember, and this, this was... Robert Mueller shot it. I remember thinking when looking at the first answer print that it was so sharp and so clear that it hurt my eyes to watch it. It was just spectacular. That that shot of of the uh, were they birch trees or? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. When they God, were going through the forest, that yeah. was as and, far and as the, the eye could see. The bark see. was all peeling off. Yeah. Wow. Robbie Robbie said to Jim, "The trees have eyes because <laughs> the 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 knots in the trees yeah, yeah. look very much like eyes." It was very very beautiful. Robbie worked with uh, Vim Vendors, and in 1984, I believe, Stranger Than Paradise was at Con, and Paris, Texas was at Con. And Jim and, and Vim and Robbie, I think, were all started to become part of a, a similar circle. Because Jim had been a teaching assistant for Nicholas Ray, and uh, Vim made a f- film about Nicholas Ray called Lightning Over Water. Anyway, over the course of that process in the, in the early and mid-'80s, they got to know each other. And then Jim and Robbie got together and, and first worked together on Down by Law. And then Mystery Train and Dead Man and Ghost Dog and some of the most spectacular film photography that you're you're really ever going to see. So so Jim kind of got that out of people. I mean, that's right. He, he was somehow managed, well, somehow. We all know how he did it, but yeah. he would get more out of you than you thought you had in you. Because I think they all, like we were talking about Jim, so the three of us schmucks sitting here saying, hey, Jim's an interesting guy and he has an interesting vision, and so we all kind of gave ourselves over to that. But that also happened with Robbie, and that happened with actors, and that happened with a lot of people who just wanted to throw in and say, like, man, whatever you're after, it's intriguing, and I, I, I want to come along. Being a collaborator over so many years, I asked Jay to talk about the role of music in Jim Jarmusch's films. I think music was an enormous influence on him as a filmmaker, and and, and on us in the cutting room when we're making the films, it's often something that is in place from the earliest days of script writing. You know, Jim, I think, imagined uh, Crazy Horse music uh, from the very inception of the film Dead Man. And in all of his films, music just plays a key role, not only the specific music 
in terms of the source music that's going to be in the film and in terms of the score that's going to be done for the film, but also just in terms of the filmmaking itself, the musicality of the of the process of editing and the process of mixing. You know, it's a, the soundscape and the music and the sound effects and the dialogue are all p- part of this flow. And I think it all comes from a deep, deep-seated connection to music itself. And he, and he, and he's, a, he's a musician as well. And uh, yeah, I think... Stuff is cut very musically. It flows. Yeah. I mean, that was always musically. the goal. That was always the goal. We always, we sort of bonded over music. And I think we bonded a bit of, in the musicality of cutting, right. uh, cutting his particular films. Yeah. And, and um, I mean, he did come up, you know, in, in, the, in the mid to late 70s, out of the punk rock scene. And I, and I think that that attitude also lent itself to his filmmaking. He has a very non-hierarchical approach. So if just, someone's an intern or if someone's a sound so just mixer... On that, on that point, he almost never has a music editor. On most films, they'll have someone specifically to cut the music. But he would cut the music along with Jay. You know, I even did it on Coffee and Cigarettes. And I'll never forget when I was taking source music and cutting it to fit the the various vignettes. Uh, he was, he, you know, he, he couldn't get over how I, you know, I did what I did, you know. And he says, "Yeah, you took out the heart of the matter," you know. I said, "Well, you need a beginning, a middle, and an end," and that's what I did. I figured it out, you know. It was funny. You know, but um, in, in coffee and cigarettes, as Chick was saying, there was there was a different piece of source music for almost every one, and okay. and a different flavor, and a different rhythm, and a different style, and a different tone, and it just deeply, deeply influenced everything we did. But you guys also designed the film. In other words, there are movies that are wall to wall music, <laughs> and Jim was not that at all. He had his areas where music played an important part, and then it would. And the music was very structurally important to what he was doing in that scene when he right. had it. And then, there, there never music never music. was music just for the sake of music. Right, exactly. There was a purpose. And then he would go into the dialogue and tell the story. And, and even with actors that ad-libbed, because a lot of the coffee and cigarettes were ad-libs. Well... With, with a structure, with a design. Some, know. yeah, some. I mean, I think the actors were involved in the writing process. So, you know, he would come up with these scenarios and, and then... But, and, and he always writes for indiv- for specific people. Right. And, and then he would involve them. And, and that was true of Ghost Dog as well. Forrest got involved a little bit in in what that character was was like and how he behaved and it brought some really wonderful things to that so he definitely incorporated the actors in sort of almost in the writing process in terms of coming to understand the characters and what drove them and he always writes for specific actors he helps him i think envision the character and he involves them just like he involves us you know and again it's not to imply that he's not at the helm there's no question he's at the helm he's just not a dictator. He's just right. not an authoritarian. It's not part of his personality. So there's this this openness that allows interesting things to happen. We wanted to embrace this unique approach because it lent itself to what we were doing. And so mixing at night and, you know, I mean, God, there's a thousand stories. When we had Neil Young in for Dead Man, it was, oh, uh, that it was, was funny. amazing. I was doing the dialogue premix at the time. And Jim, uh, when you're doing dialogue premix, what you're doing is you, you're you're kind of arranging. You're dealing with a lot of technical problems, technical issues. So a lot of times the director really isn't around 
because you don't want them sitting there while you're spending 20 minutes trying to get rid of camera noise, that kind of stuff. But it's imperative so, so because, it, because it makes oh, the yeah, dialogue no, no, but, sing and it makes it easy on the ear. It's but, a very, very important part of the process. Exactly. But the point is I was working nine to six regular days during the dialogue premix process. And Neil Young came in. He was supposed to come in like on a Thursday or something, but he ended up showing up Wednesday at like four in the afternoon. All right, and I'd been working from nine in the morning. So about four in the afternoon, Neil comes in. So we start screwing around with his music and playing around with stuff. And and it's about midnight. We're working to about midnight, and I'm getting really tired because I've been there from nine. And I'm saying, like, I'm going to turn around and say maybe we should, you know, stop this. And just before I said anything, Neil picks up the phone, calls up Carnegie Deli, orders a big platter of beans and franks. And I said, okay. We're gonna be here for a while. <laughs> I mean, this was after this was after just a, an incredible process of securing Neil, commandeering Neil to do the music for this movie, convincing him that he could do it and should do it. Even though he he when he finally saw the movie and saw it with some of his music tempted in, he he realized how special it was and he jumped in, you know. And that was one of like the highlights a, of my life. Oh, no, Neil, same Neil here. Neil Young was like, you know. Same here. Life. But this this moment that you're describing came after, like, just a few days before that, Jim and I were out in San Francisco recording that music. And, and it was just a few days before that where he agreed to do it. And the great Larry Johnson, L.A. Johnson, Neil's audiovisual specialist, arranged the whole thing. And, and we took our, it was, a, it was still kind of a rough cut at that point you know, running probably about two and a half hours, and we took it out to San Francisco, and Larry Johnson orchestrated this incredible recording scenario with a mobile recording truck in the alley and and surrounded Neil with six or eight monitors so he could see the film. We recorded the score live to the movie and then brought it back and had to sort of take these three takes that we had recorded with Neil covering the entire movie. Right, right. And, and uh, they basically the, would run the entire length of the movie nonstop, right. stop and Neil would perform to the entire length of the movie. And then we made we made three copies of the film, one with each of these takes and gave a set to Jim and a set to Neil and they watched them and they made some notes. And then we and then we sort of showed up at Dom's doorstep and said, we have these three takes. We need to mix them together. It's like a music premix in, in, in some way. And we and we came into sound one and and commandeered a studio and Dominic and 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 just kind of started weaving those three takes together. But that's uh, one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my life because because Neil Young was a, like a hero of mine at the time. It was like the most amazing thing I get to work with Neil Young. Holy shit! But at one point there was a really difficult music transition. You know, it's like two pieces of music that just didn't want to go together, you know, and I'm sitting, I'm listening to it, I'm trying to figure out how to get from one to the other, so it's, not that it has to be smooth or anything, but it doesn't well, jar and call it attention to, to itself, and, you know, so I'm working on it, and I finally get it to where I felt, oh, that felt pretty good, and Neil Young goes, wow, that was really musical, and I'm like, oh, man, I am in fucking heaven, <laughs> That was like, oh man, the best compliment I've ever had in my life. Yeah. I think, I mean, these are the kind of experiences that evolved 
in, 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 out of all the various things that all three of us have been talking about uh, uh, tonight, you know, it, that openness to the creative process allowed those kind of things to happen. And, and, and that's why those movies are so special and those soundtracks are so, so special musically and, and, and sound effects wise. You know, there were intense moments, there were difficult moments, there were hard times, there were, but, but that openness to the, to the, to the creative process and, 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 and letting the creative process sort of sit on top of anything else that might be yeah, going see, on. Even when it was really fraught. It was yeah. just very The most important thing is we make something, fraud. Make it something good. It's kind of like, oh, that doesn't work. Let's try something different. You know, it was about as contentious as it ever got, you know, which is just marvelous. And, and part of that was the fact that everybody just inherently trusted everybody else. And everybody was absolutely committed to the film and where we wanted to be with it. I think that was palpable. Yeah. Absolutely. Everybody's commitment. And, 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 and I think that that was because of Jim. Everybody was committed to providing Jim with whatever he might need to, to weave something special out of, out of a given movie. I'll say one thing about Dead Man. I mean, I've, I've mixed 300-something films. And out of every film I've mixed, there's only one film... To this day, that I would say, not that it's perfect or the things couldn't be changed, but there's only one film that I'm totally satisfied with the soundtrack as released, and that's Dead Man. I agree. It captures the moment of making Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And the I wouldn't of change it. a frame. The um, it, it, coffee and cigarettes was a whole different animal because because it was a it was not conceived as a normal feature. We, right. we, you know, Jim shot one at one point. He shot a couple more at another point. Shot another one at another point. And one of the thoughts at that point was to do one sort of on the tail end of each feature, right. you know. But things change and things things. And then because he, he had this amazing opportunity, we did a music video for Tom Waits for the Red Hot and Blue Cole Porter tribute, and then kind of on the tail of that. He came up with this amazing idea for a coffee and cigarettes short with Tom and Iggy Pop. And then there was another sort of moment of downtime between two films where he shot two more, but then we never got around to cutting them. And then he decided he wanted to shoot another batch of them and flesh it out to a feature. So he and Fred Elms, great DP, got together and shot the remaining batch of them. And we and we put them all together and made them into a and made them into a little movie. One of the other coffee and cigarettes vignettes was with Kate Blanchett. And Kate Blanchett. Yeah. That and was that a beauty. was that was that was cool. Oh, that was a thing you know? of beauty. And that was a thing of beauty. That was the only one I think that we shot thirty five for the split screen effect. She played herself and she played her cousin, cousin. Shelley. Yep. And she was brilliant as both. Right. And uh, really definitely one of the more spectacular ones. I think when we were working on Broken Flowers, Jim told me that Bill Murray asked him, who played opposite Kate Blanchett in that, uh, <laughs> as her cousin Shelley in that short film? And Jim was like, that, 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 that was Kate. And Bill said, no, Kate couldn't be. And yeah. she, she is like a chameleon. She yeah. really took on two personalities. And Kate, Kate, the Kate half of that, she was very lovely and, and, and beautiful and, and, and wonderful. But Shelley was... I know. The shit, you I know. know. <laughs> Shelly was just great. She was great. And, but all of these were like just these, you know. Jim had made a number of films, some of them more episodic than others, and here we had eleven different short stories, you know, populated by the most amazing actors, all kind of written by Jim and 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 
performed by the, the most fantastic actors you could imagine. And it allowed for, like, it, it created an opportunity to see the sort of, I don't know about philosophy, but sort of like the po- poetry or the vision of Jim across all these stories. And when they did come together as one thing, you could see through them all what that was. That, to me, the most beautiful always was the, the last one. Oh, that's uh, right. Uh, and, 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 and how it just was Bill Rice and Taylor Mead and hearing something beautiful and feeling something beautiful in, in the music. And Who was the, the music? Was, uh, oh, Mahler. Mahler, right. Yeah. And he's, he's, listening, he's hearing it in his head. He's hearing it in his head. And we are losing him. He is yeah. drifting off to the, right. next, uh, to the next plane of life. Right. He, he, he dies. He's going. Yeah. yeah, it's really pretty Beautiful. amazing. Jim's brother Tom is in the background uh, sweeping up. Right, okay. <laughs> well, even even with RZA and, and uh, Bill, Bill Murray. Murray and, yeah, Bill and... motherfucking Murray. That was very complicated. <laughs> I think that was very difficult for Bill. He, he was complaining to Jim for a while after that that every time his fans saw him on the street, they were like, Bill motherfucking Murray. <laughs> and he was getting a little tired of that greeting every time they came up. But all these, you know, that's the thing, the compilation of all 11 of them, it's really a beautiful example of, like, somehow, and it, and it created an opportunity for us, I think, in terms of picture editing and sound editing and sound design and mixing to, to, to sort of, like, just put it out there in a casual way. This is, this is the sort of simple poetry of, of, of it all. And, yeah. and, and poetry. Uh, music and and, uh, and 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 sound effects and this kind of authenticity and realism part of it and the poetic part of it and somehow bringing those two together in a, in a nice natural way and letting it letting it play for itself. Stay tuned for the next episode of Frame by Frame, which tells the story of Sound One, the nexus of the New York film industry from 1968 to 2011. This episode of Frame by Frame was produced by Isabel Sederni and Ben Baker. The audio engineer was Tyler Newhouse for Soundtrack. In New York, this is Isabel Sederni, and this is Frame by Frame.